You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, has anybody ever met a grumpy, unhappy, uptight Christian before? (laughs) I think I met a couple this morning. Are you sure? I don't know about you, but I think, unfortunately, sometimes Christians are unwittingly uh, the uptight, grumpy Unhappy Christian. I've met a few myself. Some Christians seem more miserable than joyful. And in some churches, I mean, you come in and immediately the atmosphere is no running, no shouting, no talking, no drinks, no laughing, no smiling, no fun. It's like I've I've been to churches where I feel like just before I even get in the building, there's signs on the door that tell you expected behavior. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun, you know. And a lot of churches kind of come across that way. Unwittingly, I think they're actually putting a damper on the joy that God wants us to have. Paul uh, was planning on going to Rome as a preacher, but he ended up there as a prisoner. He had been through a lot. He had been beaten several times. He had been shipwrecked uh, four times at this point. He had been left for dead, and he was facing the potential Uh, of execution as he was sitting in prison now uh, for four years total. uh, He had reasons to be negative and he had time to think and time to write. He was missing his friends. He was missing being in the ministry. But Paul knew that somehow being in the situation that he was in was paving the way for God's word to be shared. And so he wrote about all kinds of things, but the primary thing that he wrote in the book of Philippians, which we've been going through, is this whole idea of how to live a life of joy. And last week we challenged how living an authentic life in Christ and understanding how God has designed us to be in him and in he in us and how we can live authentic lives. Today we're going to talk about the deception of religion in our life. And the Apostle Paul, picking up where we left off last week, uh, gives a shout out to a couple of friends. And then he kind of says a religion is one of the worst things that you could be a part of. And that there's truly one faith to put your trust in. So picking up where we left off, let's jump into uh, Philippians chapter 2. He mentions two of his friends, and the first one is named Timothy. Timothy was a full-time minister, a full-time pastor. He was also a part-time evangelist. He had a very specific call of God, and it was full-time, what's known as full-time vocational ministry. He was a minister. So this is what he says about Timothy. Philippians 2.19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Remember, Paul is in prison. Timothy is hanging out, visiting Paul on a regular basis as he's in prison. And and he's like, he's hoping to send Timothy out to see them soon. He goes, uh, I hope to see that he comes to see you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. He's going to come back and tell me how awesome things are doing, I hope. Verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Um, It was a very special relationship. Paul was very instrumental in the leading of Timothy and his family to Christ. Paul also personally took Timothy under his wing and mentored him and discipled him. They traveled the world together. They preached together. Uh, They they planted churches together. Uh, Timothy was like a son to Paul. In fact, Paul often calls Timothy my son, which he does right here. For everyone looks out for their own interests, he says, 
not those of Jesus, uh, but not those of Jesus Christ. This little verse, by the way, is like a, a great verse that you can put on a mug, put on a, uh, a, a post-it note or something. This verse is completely contained in its context in one verse. And it's this. Little verse, big idea. The world looks out for themselves, but not the people of Jesus, period. If we're going to walk in Jesus, then our whole mindset is not to look out for ourselves. But he says, Timothy's grasped this, and he lives his heart for the lives of others. Verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son, spiritual son, with his father himself, Paul, he says he has served with me in the work of the gospel. They traveled the world together. They planted churches together. They preached together. Uh, This is Paul and Timothy's life. I mean, Paul, the spiritual father, Timothy, the spiritual son, the minister. Man, I'm thankful for the Paul's And I'm thankful for the Timothys. He says, I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see things go with me, how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He says, he's coming to you soon, and I hope that I'll be following him. All right, that's the first person he mentions. Now, the second guy is maybe a guy you've never heard of before, and his name is Epaphroditus. And he was a regular guy. He was a guy who went to the church in Philippi who just loved God and was willing to serve God wherever help was needed. So he says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother in Christ, co-worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. So this is a guy who basically in the, in the church said, hey, we need somebody to go 800 miles to go visit Paul and to give him an offering so that he can eat and have groceries and food and take care of him while he's in prison. Because that was customary in uh, Roman prisons. If you were in uh, seasons of house arrest, you had to somehow survive on your own. So they would send him offerings and they're like, we need somebody who can go. Who can go? Epaphroditus says, you know, I guess I'll go. I'll travel 800 miles and do whatever it's needed. I'll serve. I see a need. I'll feel it. Uh, Fill it. Verse 26, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. So here comes Epaphroditus. Somehow along or somewhere along the journey, he gets really ill. Not just a little sick, like, like but deathly ill, like super ill. He's going to die ill. And he's missing his home. He's feeling sick, but he recovered. But God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also me to spare sorrow upon sorrow. I mean, I just, I got enough to worry about than to have one of the people that I love dying while they're coming to visit me. He says, we don't know what happened, but he nearly died getting to Paul. Verse 28, therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him back so that when you see him again, uh, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. (laughs) It's like he's in safe arms. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Because, by the way, if you have your Bible, circle that, honor people like him. Who are people like him? People who just step up where needed. People who say, hey, send me. You need something? Send me. I'm available. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm going to have to rearrange my schedule. I'm going to have to change some things in my life to meet this need. But here I am. I'm available. Use me in any way you want. He says, honor people like that. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Basically, he was saying, you couldn't go, so you sent him. 
You know, a lot of times that's what mission work is, really, is that, you know, we have a heart, for instance, for Haiti. And some of you guys, you would love to go to Haiti or to Honduras or one of the other places that we uh, are part of outreach with. And you're like, man, I wish I could go, but I, but I can't. So I'm going to send this person. And, and so they're going in a position for your name because of something that you could not do. So you have three people. You have Paul, the spiritual father, pouring his life into others. And some people here are the Pauls. Some people here, the men and women who are the Pauls are few. These are the people who are the spiritual fathers, the spiritual mothers. You're pouring your years of experience into other people. You know that the season of your life is coming close to the latter ends of your days. And so you're pouring your life into the people around you as a spiritual father and spiritual mother. Thank God for the Pauls. And then there's a second person, Timothy. He's the pastor, the teacher. He's uh, boldly leading the church. He was also a pastor in Ephesus for uh, several years. Um, not everyone is called to full-time ministry. Not everyone is called to, uh, to volunteer as a ministry leader or to head up a ministry. Uh, but those that do, do it faithfully. Follow Timothy's example. And he not only did he receive from Paul, but he also ministered to Paul, encouraged Paul. It was a very reciprocal relationship. But there are Timothys who lead ministries, who lead churches. Many of you volunteer and you take up a ministry and you lead it. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of hours. It's inconvenient. But you have that call of God in your life. Thank God for the Timothys, men and women who are the Timothys. And then there's the third type of person, Epaphroditus. And this was the regular guy who just loved God and was ready to serve. This is the person who says, where do you need me? I'll go wherever is needed and I'll go where Jesus needs me. This is where Christians, most of, uh, most Christians are at. Not everybody can be a spiritual father or mother. Not everybody is called to be in ministry. But every Christian can be like Epaphroditus, who just says, here I am, whatever you need. Oh, you need a volunteer over there? Here I am. Oh, you need someone to fill in over there? Here I am. You need someone to help out in the mornings? Oh, here I am. I love the Epaphroditus people. He was picked to bring the offering to Paul, very soon. He's basically um, a delivery person. To bring this offering and to serve Paul, he gets ill, nearly dies on the way. He could have just turned around because it got tough, but no, he pushed through and he finished what he started. And he finished the mission. And guys, listen, because of that regular guy named Epaphroditus, we are reading the book of Philippians this morning. He is the one that brought the word of God from Paul back to the church in Philippi. And we wouldn't even have it if it wasn't for a regular guy named Epaphroditus. You see, what he thought was just a simple FedEx job for them turned out to be the word of God for us. And I want you to understand this, that when we belong to Jesus, here's the big thought. Everything you do is important Everything has the potential to be ministry. You think, well, I'm just 
a regular person or I'm, you know, I'm not the guy who's speaking or preaching. I'm not in the band and, you know, I don't head up a ministry. God, am I really important? Am I really valuable? Can I really make a difference? If you will just say, God, here I am. If you will just say, Jesus, wherever you need me. And then when you commit to something, if you actually finish it and you complete it, join the Habaphroditus team and know that you are bringing the word of God to people that may never know it. And I love this example of these three types of people. Imagine what we could accomplish if we had a church filled with people, not like Paul, not like Timothy, though those are powerful tools in the church, but what if our church was filled with people like Epaphroditus? Imagine what we could accomplish if we said, here I am, Jesus, and then we finished what we started. Powerful stuff. So then he does what a lot of preachers does. He says, finally, my brothers... By the way, that's his, he says finally several times. You ever been in like in a preacher that's just talking forever? As I start to close, my second closing, my third closing, you know, I'm just going to, you know, we drop those seeds of we're going to wrap this up as a way to keep you engaged so you don't think he's going to go for another 20 minutes, but maybe we will go for another 20 minutes. But we're like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up with this. <laughs> you know, just reeling you in. All right. So this is kind of funny. He says, finally, my brothers. Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. He says, basically, you know, I sound like a broken record on this whole joy thing. He says, be joyful, have joy. It is your joy. Make your joy complete. He says stuff like that 14 times in this little letter to the church in Philippi. He says, I may sound like a broken record on this joy thing, but I'm repeating myself because I want to make sure that you get it. So up to this point... Paul's tone has been very kind and loving. But all of a sudden, he starts to take a turn as he gets serious about something that's very, very deeply disturbing for him. And he, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs. <laughs> those men who do evil. Those mutilators of the flesh. Now, it's at this point that if he was married, his wife would have kicked him under the table. And said, giving him the look that most of us men get when we're hanging out as couples with friends. And we begin to tell a story that we shouldn't be telling. Or, you know, we just go over the edge a little bit on one story that's usually kind of gross. You know, guys like the gross stories when we're like, you know. So this is one of those moments. He doesn't beat around the bush. Verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision... We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He gets very passionate about something that can steal your joy, and he actually gets angry about it. What does he get angry about? He gets angry about religion, and we know it as legalism. He, the issue here is that there's something trying to undermine the passion, the joy, and the love of Jesus Christ. And that is legalism. Strict rules that people are called upon if they want to be a Christian. And he says, man, you're, you're undermining Jesus when you become religious. 
Those that went from church to church, uh, from church to church, were trying to undermine Paul. Paul would plant these churches, and then these groups of, of Pharisees who claimed to be Christians would come into the church behind Paul. Paul's now 800 miles away. He can't do anything about it. And so this group of people coming in with this knowledge of the Bible or the Old Testament, and they began to teach, if you really want to be a Christian, then you need to circumcise yourself. If you really want to be a Christian, you need to start changing the way you eat and eat more kosher. If you really want to be a Christian, you must worship on the Sabbath. If you really want to be a Christian, you must follow these guidelines and restrictions. If you really want to be a Christian, you must follow the Old Testament law perfectly. Now, the Apostle Paul gets angry and he says, watch out for those dogs. And then there were those from within the church that after those Pharisees, known as Judaizers, left, that these people from within the church would stay there and plant seeds of divisiveness within the church. While one person would be preaching the freedom of Jesus Christ and salvation through faith, others would be preaching, no, 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 it's this plus this plus this plus this plus this plus this. His passionate words remind us a few things about church, and I want you to know this. Here's the first thing is that not all church leaders can be trusted. It's important to realize, and I know many of you have experienced this, unfortunately, I think yourself, is that not all church leaders are trustworthy to give you the word of God faithfully. And just because they are a church or just because they have a, a cross on the building or because they're nice or kind, it doesn't mean that they can be trusted with the word of God. The second thing is that we must not be afraid to confront deception. Now, the Apostle Paul in other letters tells us that we must confront with truth, yes, but also with love, with compassion, with gentleness, and patience. But he was very bold about confronting the deception. We can't let it simmer. In fact, the Bible says, and the Apostle Paul says later on, that these things are like poison in the church and that it can grow like yeast and infect the whole batch. And then he says, the third thing it reminds me of is that there are right and wrong beliefs. It's important to know that not everybody's right. You know, we, there are some things we can differ on, and it's okay that they're not essential. There are essentials that we hold tightly that we must agree upon. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, faith in Jesus alone, uh, that Jesus is the only way. John 14, 6, our theme verse for our church. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. These are things we hold on to tightly. There are all kinds of things we can disagree on. But we hold tight to the truth of the values of, of, of the essentials. And that means there are some things that are true and some things that are wrong. And he was pointing out that these guys are wrong. And it also reminds us that, all, that not all faith, not all religions are the same. Not all faiths are the same. Paul is often uh, reminding us, and in this passage he does remind us that there is only one true faith, faith in Jesus alone. So what I want to do now is spend a couple minutes to tell you how Apostle Paul challenges us to guard our faith, to safeguard our faith, that one faith that we've been trusted in. And here's the first thing is this, look out for the dogs. Who let the dogs out? I just had to get that out of my system. It's in my mind. Look out. For the dogs, and, and you know, he says this, watch out for the dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. What is he talking about? 
Well, the dogs are people who call themselves Christians, but yet twist and create harsh rules, guilt, and manipulation. Now, what they were doing, now, imagine a culture where uh, you're a Greek. Okay, now, we're, we're known as what are Gentiles. Basically, Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish. And so all of us are Gentiles. Now, in the, in the European world at that time, none of the Greeks or Romans were even circumcised or even knew what circumcision was. It was very unique to the Jewish people and to uh, what God had instructed for them to do. So here comes these people giving their life to Jesus, hearing about the Apostle Paul. They're like 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. And, you know, teenagers are like, man, I want to be a Christian. I'm giving my life to Jesus. Then all of a sudden, here comes these people who are, you know, the, the Pharisee-type Christians, and they're like, yeah, you really love Jesus? Get it circumcision. You're like, I'm 40 years old. You want me to do what? You might want to talk to my wife about that, <laughs> you know. And he said, man, these guys are mutilators of the flesh. There's a difference between Christian and religious. A Christian, in a nutshell, is this, humility, joy, and compassion as a response to the truth of who Jesus is. But the dogs are self-serving, legalistic, and divisive. Look out for the religious folks. Now, when Paul uses the word dogs, you might think of this. Look out for the dogs. Oh, cute. I tried to find some of the cutest pictures of dogs that I could find. I think they're all super cute. So when he says, look out for the dogs, we're like, I'll look out for them. But this is actually what he meant. He said, look out for these folks. <laughs> look out for these. Speaking of wild dogs. Now, in the time that Paul wrote this, dogs were like, you know, if you've ever been to South America or if you've ever been to certain parts of Russia and Europe, basically dogs wander the streets and by the hundreds. And uh, they, they just multiply and multiply. They're violent. They're wild. They're dirty. They're ravenous. They're prone to attack. And they just try to get food wherever there's food. They, they're kind of violent. And he says, watch out. That's what they understood dogs to be primarily in their culture. He says, watch out. For the dogs. This is how religious people are. They will try to attack you. They are ravenous. They, they will reproduce themselves. And they will become a disease in the church if you don't watch out for those dogs. He says, verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. That means my salvation, your salvation, he says, is not to be confident in our efforts of what we try to do to make ourselves right. For them, it was if you get circumcised, God will love you more. If you get circumcised, you will finally be someone that God approves of. So we translate that today, meaning if I can just read the Bible a little bit more, if I can memorize a few more verses, if I can have perfect attendance at church, if I can just volunteer and do certain things, we do these things which are good, but if we do them in a way to maybe think that we're going to get God's favor or make him like us more or that somehow these are the things that we do to get saved, then he says, you got it all wrong. That's religion. He says, we don't put our confidence in the flesh. For them, the issue was Jesus plus circumcision but true followers worship in the spirit, not in the flesh. He says, our circumcision is one of the heart, as God has cut away the areas of, of sin in our life. Here's a short history lesson. 
Have you guys ever heard in churches today called the worship wars? Worship wars are what happens between churches that argue over the style of music, right? It should be hymns. No, it should be contemporary. You shouldn't have drums. It should be rock and roll. It should never be rock and roll. It should be organ. It should be piano only. You know, there should never be a band. You should have a choir. Uh, you know, you should never have a choir. It's an ensemble. And it's just these kind of approaches that churches have all over the country and even the world, they're known as worship Wars because they argue over what's appropriate music. And before there were the worship wars, there were the diet wars and the circumcision wars. And what are the diet wars? That means that there are people that said, if you really want to love Jesus, then you need to eat a certain way and you need to avoid a certain kind of food and you can't eat the food that was sold in the market that was once at the foot of an, of an idol. You can't do that. And so they would say, and others would say, you know what, it's okay because we're saved through grace and that the idols are dead anyhow. So they would argue and fight over that. Then there was the circumcision wars, like what they're having right here in Philippi. If you really want to be a Christian, then you need to snip, snip. You need to get that circumcision done and really look like, you know, the people of God, uh, like Abraham. And, and the other's like, no, it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. Genesis uh, started this whole idea of, of uh, God did in Genesis to Abraham, this whole idea of circumcision. He told Abraham, he says, to set you apart from everyone else, he put in this covenant of the eighth Day, which meant on the eighth day of a baby's life, uh, they were to be circumcised as a sign that they were different from the rest of the world. It represented the heart. It was an act of obedience. And it basically said you're not like the rest of the people around you. And so the big debate is this. Did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament laws or do they still apply today? And that's the question that is, that is debated all all the time. I actually have people who are part of our church over the years where this is an issue for them because we lean on the side of Paul in this, in this uh, uh, discussion. The key question is, what was the purpose of the Old Testament to begin with? And this will help us to understand if we have to live according to the Old Testament still. This is what it says in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Everything in the Old Testament was a sign of Jesus. He says, Hebrews is a discourse all about this. That's a great letter in the New Testament. Galatians um, says that the Old Testament was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified or saved through faith. Uh, Romans 3, 19 to 23 says that the law was given to us to show how much we needed God. It does not make us right with God. It only identifies a problem, but Jesus is the solution to that problem. We're righteous through that faith. The Old Testament was simply uh, a, a signpost, not a stairway. A lot of people think, man, if I just obey the Ten Commandments, let me word to let me tell you something. You'll never obey the Ten Commandments. All right. Well, I've never murdered somebody. Maybe you've wanted somebody dead in your heart. Well, I've never committed adultery. Oh, but you've lusted in an inappropriate way in your mind. Well, I, I've never, I've never bowed down before an idol. Maybe you have, but I've never had an idol. Maybe your job was your idol. Maybe your kids were your idol. Maybe some career goal was your idol. We find that if you were to look at the heart of each one of the issues of the Ten Commandments, we're all, we've all fallen short of God's glorious standards. Every one of us, all the Ten Commandments do in the rest of the Old Testament, it just identifies a big problem. The problem is 
we're sinners. That's all the Old Testament does. It identifies a huge problem and declares hope is coming. That hope that has been found is Jesus. The signpost is pointing to Jesus. The religious say you need Jesus plus, that Jesus is not enough. Well, this enraged Paul. He says, listen, man, watch out for those dogs because Jesus plus anything is religion and anyone who teaches that is a ravenous dog. Today we still see it. Jesus plus rules. Jesus plus food restrictions. Jesus plus worship styles. Jesus plus you must be baptized to be saved. We, we believe baptism is a response to salvation, not an act of salvation. It's a response to salvation. Some people say Jesus plus speaking in tongues or Jesus plus voting Republican or voting a Democrat. Sunday night church is the only way to go. And if you don't have a church that Sunday night services are there, then you don't have a real church. Early morning prayer, if you don't get up at the crack of dawn and pray, then you're not like Jesus. Uh, it's performance and rituals. We, we unwittingly have Pharisees in the church. And they become the grumpy, negative people who make people feel ashamed that they're not walking the way that they walk. And they've unnecessarily become Pharisees. The tools to get to know God to them have become the rules to know God. Here's what he says, verse 4. He says, uh, Philippians, though I could have confidence in my own effort, uh, if anyone could, he goes, it's me. He says, because, you know, he's going to give his religion resume. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I, I've had more. He says, man, I've been there. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've done that. I bought the T-shirt. <laughs> I still have it in my closet. He goes, I've tried to live that way. And he says, here's my religion resume. All right, verse 5, it says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Check, just like the law says, the religious law. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. Man, I'm the right race. I'm like a, a true blue Jew, right? It says, and I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not just any Jewish person. I'm from one of the great royal tribes, Benjamin. I'm part of the right family. I'm a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I'm pure Jewish. Some translations say I'm Hebrew of the Hebrews. He goes, I was a member of the Pharisees. Man, that's the teaching order. The guys who memorized the scriptures and knew the Bible like nobody else. He says, man, I was one of the most, I was part of one of the most devoted groups of the day. Man, I knew the Bible forward and backward who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. Man, he says, I lived the Jewish law, all 600 commandments perfectly, and I was so passionate about this Old Testament that I persecuted, belittled, and made fun of, and attacked, and tracked down every Christian that I could get my hands on. And as far, uh, it goes, I was so ze uh, zealous that I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. He says, man, I followed the 600 plus commandments perfectly. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. He says, then I met Jesus. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Maybe you have been there. Looking back, you man, all those wasted years chasing stuff that didn't matter. All those years chasing the things that never made me happy, that never filled, filled the void in my heart. 
He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Hallelujah. I love that. The infinite value. Man, there's, not a, it's, there's, no, there's no price on how incredible the love of Jesus is. It's infinite value. It's priceless. He says, for this sake I have disregarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Some translations say rubbish. So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Now the Bible uses harsh words to talk about harsh subjects. And this is a word, the word garbage or rubbish, depending on the translation, is a strong word. And the word is skubala. And skubala means excrement. It literally means dung. It means the worst, most imaginable uh, garbage that you can imagine, which in their culture, the word literally means excrement. So he says, I count all of these accomplishments that I did for religion. I count all the good efforts and the things I tried to do to climb my stairway to God. All those uh, successes and accolades, all the things that, that even I memorized and all the good things that I did. He says, I count them all as dung. He says, man, that religion that they're feeding you is a load of fill in the blank. He says, first of all, watch out for the dogs. Second, look out for the dogs is first. Second is don't step in the rubbish. <laughs> don't step in the rubbish. He says, one day I'm going to stand before God, and so are you. And when I stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven, my answer will not be, well, I gave to feed the kids foundation. Well, I went to church regularly. Well, I was a good person. No, my answer will be, I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. And by faith, I look to the cross as payment for my sins. I am forgiven. I am a son of God. That is my response. He says, anything else is rubbish. Don't step in it. Don't carry it around. Don't walk in it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we are all unclean and our righteous acts are filthy rags. Again, the Bible uses harsh words to talk about harsh things. And we often think filthy rags, but the original word for filthy means menstruation. So he says, your good efforts, your good works, your attempts to make God like you better, your attempts to get to God through your good efforts, he says, they're filthy. They're menstrual rags. Paul in his letters reminds us that this is not a license, however, to live reckless lives, but whether through Christ we are saved by faith and we represent Jesus in how we live and we are to hold each other accountable, but we are not saved by these efforts. Paul gives us his religion resume. Now he gives us his righteousness resume. And this is what he says, but I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Everybody say faith. God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith in Christ. He says, I want to know Christ. And experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. That's the Holy Spirit. And I want to suffer with him, sharing with his death. That means I will embrace wherever this faith takes me. I will embrace whatever hardship living for Jesus means for me. Even if it's death. 
Verse 11, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He says, man, if I die, I'm going to be resurrected. And if I live, I will be resurrected. I'm going to, man, this is what it's about, man. I'm living for Jesus. I want to know the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to know his forgiveness. I want to know him working in and through my life and know that I will live again one day. Paul defines righteousness very simply as this, faith in Jesus. That's righteousness. While he says religion is this and this and this and this and trying to do this and trying to do that and trying to obey this and memorizing this and being a good person, being the right race and being the right religion, being the right political party, being the right, you know, that is religion. But Jesus says, you want to know what it means to be a Christian? Faith in Jesus. Paul says, this is my new resume. Jesus took this self-righteous, arrogant, unloving person, this legalistic person who is mean-hearted and arrogant and made him new. God is holy, we are not, but in Christ we are made holy. We are made right through Jesus Christ alone, alone, alone. Not rules, but by grace. Don't buy the lie. Jesus plus anything is rubbish. And he says, don't step in it. Look out for it. Watch for the dogs. Watch for what they teach. Avoid it. See, religion will tell you what righteousness is, our efforts to climb to heaven. Buddhism says cease all desires. Confucianism says, or Confucianism says meditation, education, and live a moral life. Hinduism says detach from want and be in unity with nothingness. Islam says live a good life, and if Allah wills it, you might be righteous. Judaism says obey God's law perfectly. New Age Thought says, live in concert with creation and do good. The Tao says, Taoism says, live in rhythm with the force, obey it, and flow in it. But Christianity, though it's lumped with many world's religions, it is very different and alone, declares that God saves us. You can't save yourself. You have no means, no ability, no authority, no efforts. There is not a single way that you will ever save you. That's what separates our one faith from the rest of the world. God saves us. We can't save ourselves. Philippians 3, he says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I may gain Christ and become one with him. Here's the last thing is how to safeguard your faith is make sure that you are pursuing the true prize, Jesus. See, sometimes we get into church, we get into whole, this whole God thing looking for something other than Jesus. You know, Jesus does work in our life. He does do miracles. He does restore marriages and families. But sometimes the greater reward is just him. It's just to know him. And know that in spite of your circumstance not changing, he is still good and giving you peace and giving you the strength to endure whatever life brings you. You want to safeguard your faith? Keep your eyes on the right prize. Paul lost it all. He lost his power. He lost his position. He lost his wealth. He lost his prestige. He even lost his freedom. He lost it all. For what? What did he gain? Jesus. That's all he gained. He, he, he gained Jesus just to be 
with a Savior. Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, he, he gives this scenario that I think is really powerful. He says, imagine, work with me for a second. I want you to imagine being uh, heaven being everything you've ever wanted. Just imagine heaven for a second. Free of guilt, pain, suffering, free of sickness, free of anger and violence, with great luxury, beauty, joy, peace, family is there in heaven, uh, those that have passed on who are Christians. And you're like, I want you to imagine heaven in, in all the things that you would like heaven to be. All of it. Then I want you to take Jesus out of it. Would you still want to live in heaven? Almost every person, if they were honest with themselves, would say yes. I would still want to go to heaven if Jesus wasn't there. Now, take all those things you want heaven to be, and all that's left is Jesus. Would you still want to be there? I think that's a real heart check. Because a lot of us would go, you know, I don't know if I'd want to go to heaven if there's still suffering, if there's still sickness, if I don't get to see my family. I don't know if I want to go to heaven. I mean, isn't that why I'm a Christian? No, no, you're not a Christian because of heaven. You're a Christian to know the creator, to know Jesus. So to keep our eyes on the prize is what we have to keep our eyes on if we are going to safeguard our faith. I love those things. I love things here. I love, I love the mountains. I love the beautiful lakes. I love hiking. I love skiing. I love my kids. Oh, my gosh, I love my kids. I love my wife. I, I love y'all. There's things that I love doing. I love the beauty of this life. But, but I have to ask myself, do I love the gifts greater than the gift giver? Sometimes I wonder. I think that's our biggest challenge is that we only want... God, if God gives us the goods. We only want heaven if it's all the things we want heaven to be. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Can we, can we really say that? He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do we really want the one who blesses or just the blessings? If we lose track of the real prize, then we will chase his hands rather than seek his face. Now here's the beauty of all. Yes, we get heaven. Yes, we will have perfect healing. Yes, we will have that future hope of seeing those who died in Christ once again. I get the joy of seeing my family, seeing my mother. I get that precious peace and that hope of knowing that. Yes, the streets will be gold. Yes, we'll have a place to call home. And yes, it will be beautiful and great. But the greatest thing of all, the real prize is Jesus. Jesus is the prize. And if we are to safeguard our faith, we must keep our eyes on the prize. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about keeping your eyes on the prize. And the prize is not heaven. The prize is Jesus. Being in relationship with our creator once again. Thank God. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you, God, that you give us good things. Thank you, God, that you bless us and that you give us these wonderful hopes and these, these great things in our future and in this life. But, God, help me to seek your face, not your hands. Philippians 3.13, we're going to end with this. I focus on this one thing, he says. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ is calling us. This one faith, not religion, is worth it. Following Jesus, knowing Jesus 
is worth it all. Paul traded his filthy rags of sin for clean garments of righteousness through faith. The salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus everything. He offers it to you freely, but it does cost you. It costs you everything. It costs you everything. So next week we're going to pick up in one of my favorite sections of Philippians, in uh, Philippians chapter uh, 3, verse 12. I want to pray for you right now. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your salvation. God, I thank you, Lord, that we can't climb any ladder. We can't jump through any hoops that will make us right with you. God, it's through a deep, convicting faith in what Jesus has accomplished for us. If you're here right now, maybe you've tried to be a Christian or, or tried religion through your best efforts, it'll leave you empty. It'll leave you exhausted and discouraged and grumpy. And as a Christian, if that's the way you live, you're part of the, the grumpy, the frozen chosen. You're just one of those negative Christians who can't figure out the joy of God. Here's the joy, faith in Jesus. We are righteous through Jesus, nothing else, one faith. God, thank you, Lord, that we can know that right now. If you're here right now and you say, I need to know that I'm born again. I need to know that I'm right with God. And I want the prize of not heaven but Jesus. Did you just take a moment right now and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins? And by faith, you accept that forgiveness. You receive that he has forgiven you. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me through the cross. By faith, talk to Jesus in your words, in your own words. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. By faith, I receive that. Here's my life, Jesus. I give you everything that I have. And though I stumble, and though I may struggle, and though I may fall, Father, thank you, Lord, that my salvation is in faith in you, not in my efforts. I take peace in knowing you're growing me and maturing me every day, even when I stumble. Thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.